Who is Jesus? The story revolves around this question, in particular, how Jesus himself answers this question. Last week in John 5, we saw Jesus work on the Sabbath and then use the ensuing controversy as an opportunity to speak to himself, that he, as God, can work on the Sabbath, that he's not only uh, the Son of God, but he's the one who ultimately will judge heaven and earth. Now, if you take a a moment to step back, uh, that's a mighty bold claim to make. If it is true that Jesus is the Son of God, then that has massive implications for your life. Billions throughout history have come to the conclusion that he was who he said he was. And if you haven't come to that conclusion yet, I'd invite you to consider his words for yourself. Now, because Jesus was making bold claims like, hey, I'm the Son of God, uh, he also sought to validate and provide evidence for his claims uh, by performing what are called signs or analogies to help us understand him. Sometimes these were miraculous, like turning water into wine. Sometimes they were entirely ordinary, like uh, driving folks from the temple. But they always revealed something about him. Uh, Now, in his day, people loved the signs. They loved when he healed the sick or gave sight to the blind or uh, when he bucked the religious authorities. Uh, The crowds would see him raise the dead, and they got really excited with all kinds of ideas in their head uh, what they could get Jesus to do for them. But when Jesus himself took hold of how they should interpret his signs by explaining the spiritual significance behind his signs, the crowds quickly lost interest. They wanted a Jesus who affirmed them, not a Jesus who commanded their obedience as God and King. Well, we'll deal with two signs in our text this morning, which you are almost certainly familiar with. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And we'll see that Jesus, the man who claims to be God, will be doing things that only God can do. So this week we consider the signs themselves. Next week, in the latter half of this chapter, we'll see what Jesus actually has to say about his signs when he reveals himself as the bread of life. He's the manna from heaven. Today we consider Jesus as the one who spiritually nourishes his people. So pick up with me in John chapter 6. Verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning recognizing that we need to be nourished from above. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that we would behold your glorious Son, Jesus, that we would get to know him better, that we would worship him, and that in knowing you, Lord, we would be confident in all that you've done for us. We love you and we praise you. We ask you to be here and attend the preaching of your word by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our first point this morning is Jesus nourishes his people. Um, Now as we unpack this metaphor, it's no accident that Jesus chooses to uh, use feeding as an analogy of what he does for his people. Now there are, uh, you know, food is a wonderful thing. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, Food, on the one hand, is necessary, right? So uh, to live, one must eat. And while you may abstain from eating for a time, say if you are fasting, uh, nevertheless at the end of the day or the end of your fast, whenever that is, you need to begin nourishing yourself again with food or else you cannot sustain life. Food is vital to life. Food is also enjoyable. There are those who eat to live and there are those who live to eat. And I would fall into that latter category. I love eating. I, I love everything about good food. Uh, but the amazing thing is not only can you enjoy the process of eating, but eating is something that you can enjoy with those who you love. There's something incredible about sitting around a table with family or friends or both and just enjoying a meal together. And so I want you to keep all of this in mind as we consider the miracle that Jesus performs here. Consider the brilliance of Jesus' sign because just as you need physical nourishment regularly, Jesus this morning is presenting himself to you as the person who provides spiritual nourishment to you regularly. He does say, after all, I am the bread of life. Jesus wants to present himself as the source of your spiritual vitality. Well, let's pick up in the text, verse 1. It says, after this, some time has passed again in John. There's a bunch of these little episodes. We know they take place within three years. We're not always sure exactly how much time has passed. Up to six months may have passed in this particular place. And we find that there is a great crowd, numerous people, who are coming to follow Jesus. But we get a hint that all is not well when we see why they're following Jesus. Verse 2, it says, they were following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They were intrigued by the spectacle of this miracle worker. But there's a problem, and that problem is that by the end of the chapter, though they will even see a greater sign than what he had been doing, they will reject Jesus 
because of his words. They get excited about the signs, but they reject him on account of his testimony. And so it says that Jesus is sitting on a mountain. It's probably a hill uh, in the hill country east of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that uh, the Passover is near. That'll be very significant for next week's sermon. So just tuck that away in your head. It's near Passover. And so Jesus is sitting on this big hill with his disciples, and he sees a crowd coming. Now, later we find there's 5,000 men. If you account for the uh, women and children who were not counted in that number, uh, we're probably talking around 20,000 people coming to see Jesus. I can imagine this is how the folks at Gillette Stadium felt uh, when they were there for the Taylor Swift concert and all of these thousands of Swifties were descending upon Patriot Place to see just a glimpse of their Messiah. But there's all of these people crowding in. And Jesus, seeing these thousands, turns to Philip and he says, Philip, he tests him. Right? So there's 20,000 people. He turns to Philip and says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people? And this tells us two things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus actually cares for his people. Jesus wants to feed his sheep, unlike the leaders of his day. But secondly, uh, Jesus wants to teach his disciples a lesson. What is that lesson? Well, you may have heard the phrase that God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody hear that? You're not going to find it in the Bible. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't think Philip would be very happy with you if you told him that on that day. Uh, in fact, God will often give you more than you can handle. Jesus here puts his disciples into an impossible situation. He comes to Philip and says, Philip, I need you to figure out how we can feed all of these thousands of people. You say, that doesn't sound nice. Why would God give his disciples an impossible situation. Well, he does it so that you learn to rely not on your own strength, but on his. He does it so that when you see him act, you'll recognize that he's the one who did it and glorify him. And so will those who are witness to it. Now, Philip receives the task, and his answer is basically, I have no idea. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread, that's like nine months' wages. He said, even if we had nine months' wages, we couldn't get everyone even just a, a morsel of bread. There's a, a ton of people here. And the problem is that Philip is thinking in merely human terms. He's not looking through the eyes of faith. He doesn't really understand who it is he's talking to. The correct response here would be, uh, Lord you know, just tell me what to do. But instead, Philip says, I have absolutely no idea how we're going to pull this off. Which, in merely human terms, is correct. Now, Andrew's response is a little bit better. Andrew uh, comes up and he's like, well, hey, uh, out of all of these people, I found one little boy whose mom packed him a bagged lunch. And uh, he has five loaves of barley and to fish. But, he says, I don't know how this could possibly be of use to you, Jesus. So he's getting a little bit better, but he still doesn't think that he's accomplished anything. 
Well, dear friends, the whole point is that the nature of Christ changes everything. If Jesus is just some popular man, then they truly have no way of feeding these people. But if Jesus is the God who created everything out of nothing, then certainly he's the one who can feed 5,000 with something. Brothers and sisters, when you know Jesus, it is profoundly arrogant of you to place artificial limits on what he can accomplish because of what little you have to contribute. He doesn't need anything that we have. He can do as he pleases. But he chooses to involve us in his work for our joy. So don't believe for a, a, a moment that your weakness is an impediment to the power of God, but rather your weakness is an invitation for God to manifest his glory in and through you as he does something incredible despite your shortcomings. And so it is to the glory of God that Jesus here accomplishes something through the weakness of his disciples. You see, at the end of the day, of that day, uh, nobody was, as, as everybody's sitting back, uh, satisfied. Uh, no one's going to be saying, look how faithful those disciples were. Look how smart and resourceful they were in feeding this huge crowd. No, because of what Jesus does, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that the Almighty God has done a great work. So, maybe this morning you're here and you feel like God has given you more than you can handle. Praise God. Go to Him. Ask Him to lead you and guide you in the way you should go. And watch as He manifests His glory. Well, Jesus tests them a first time. In verse 10, He tests them a second time. Jesus has the loaves and the fish. And he commands his disciples to do something. He says, go and make them sit down. In the other Gospels, we learn that they sat down in, in certain groups of numbers. I think it was 50. Now, his disciples have no idea what Jesus is about to do. They don't understand what he's about to do. They don't have any idea how he's going to feed these people. But they have been with Jesus long enough to know that when the Master tells you to do something, you better get to it. And so they do. And in faith, they obey the command before they see how things are going to unfold. Now, my little brother is, uh, has just received his instrument rating. He's uh, training to be a commercial airline pilot. Uh, that doesn't make me any more comfortable getting in an airplane with him. But he is certified by the FAA. And I'm not a pilot, but it's my understanding that when you're flying, particularly if you fly... Uh, in pitch black darkness or if you're flying through clouds and the vision is muddled, that you can often get disoriented and think that up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left. And so there comes a time in a pilot's life in which that pilot must disregard what he or she sees in favor of what they know to be true according to their instruments. 
In fact, the, the process of becoming instrument rated is training oneself to trust that my instincts are wrong and these gauges are correct. And I'm going to follow these even though I cannot see how it could possibly be true. Well, brothers and sisters, this is faith. This is what we see the disciples doing here. They're trusting in Jesus. They don't see how this could possibly end well, but they're trusting in Jesus. They're obeying his commands even when they cannot see how this is going to come to fruition. So dear friends, Christ has given you commands in his word. You may not always agree, you may not always understand, but you can be sure that his commands are for your good and his glory. And as you walk through, if you, as you walk with Jesus through this life, you will see him work things out and grow in your trust and in your faith in him when you can't see the way ahead. Well, let's see how Jesus satisfies these people. Jesus takes what little they have, he gives thanks, and he begins distributing it. Now, he distributes so much that the thousands eat not just a morsel, as Philip thought, but they are, it says, filled. They are satisfied. Down south, we would say that they are fat and happy, which is more fun. You see, Jesus doesn't just provide a snack. He provides a nourishing meal for these people so that when they leave this wilderness and they head home, they leave in the strength of a full belly. You see, when God provides, he provides in abundance. Now, we know this to be the case because he commands his disciples to pick up the leftovers, right? So if there's no leftovers, then that means that probably there are some people who could have eaten more or there might even be people who didn't eat. But the fact that there were 12 baskets of leftovers means that people ate and were satisfied. 12 baskets. By the way, that's more than they started with. But I want you to remember this sign isn't about the food. It points to a greater reality. Jesus will tell us, I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. Just as, God, uh, just as Moses relied on God to provide his people in the wilderness with manna, so Christ now is satisfying his people in the wilderness with a meal. Jesus alone is the source of our spiritual nourishment. But as he points this out next week, the crowd will lose interest in him. That's our sneak preview. Just as you need physical nourishment to live, you need spiritual nourishment to have true spiritual life. The whole point of the miraculous display of power on this day and providing physical food is so that when Jesus comes to you and he says, hey, by the way, I'm the son of God, and I'm the source of spiritual nourishment that you need. Though it sounds crazy, you look around and you see 20,000 people passed out in a food coma. And you say, well, maybe this guy who can perform miracles might actually be on to something when he tells me, I am the source of your spiritual life. Feast on me. Maybe I should listen to this guy. And so if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus in, your way, in this way, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm happy that you're here. He's a God-like uh, he's a God unlike any other. He came to earth to save sinners. He lived among us. 
He lived the life we were called to live. He died the death we deserved on the cross. And God raised him from the dead. And today he sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty and he takes care of his people. Not just for a meal, but forever. If you'd like to know Jesus in this way, he calls you to leave your sin behind and turn away from it and turn in faith, clinging to him that he died and rose again for you. He invites you to enjoy everlasting life right now. Well, the people do not interpret the sign along the lines which I just described. Well, the people do not interpret Jesus' sign in the way that I just described. Instead, they see this awesome display of power and say, how can I use this to my advantage? Uh, like our world today, they have preconceived notions about who Jesus is and, and should be, and they want to conform Jesus to their desires. Now, verse 14 says that they saw Jesus and they, they think this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. And they're thinking about a prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll let you look that up later. Where Moses says, God is going to send a prophet like me from among your brothers. And that's true. Jesus is a prophet, but it's not the whole truth. Clearly, in their understanding of the Messiah, they have this idea that the Messiah is going to reestablish the physical kingdom of his father David. And so their thought must have been something like, this guy has miraculous power. Surely he's going to be the one who will be able to throw off these Roman shackles that we've been suffering under for so long and replace them with a new Israelite monarchy. In other words, these people haven't learned since their ancestors rejected God as their king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They've forgotten the lessons of the Old Testament. That the very best of men are men at best. That David, Israel's greatest king, was frequently a massive moral failure. And if David is the best that you can get in 400 years of kings, that means that you need a different kind of king, a better king. You see, Jesus did not come to reestablish this little kingdom in the land of Canaan. He came to earth to establish a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever and rules not just over the promised land, but over the whole universe. And so it is that these people get hyped up. They want to march into Jerusalem and declare Jesus as king over new Israel. But Jesus rejects it. Verse 15 tells us he disappears into the mountains alone. Again, if Jesus is just this merely a man looking to start a new religious movement, there'd be nothing better than to seize the moment, seize political power for himself, expand his reach and his horizon as a religious and political leader. But dear friends, it was not the goal of Jesus to retrace Israel's steps, to beat a dead horse, so to speak. Jesus was there to move the plan of God forward. They wanted a king like Israel wanted Saul. But Jesus is a better king who brings a better kingdom. Do you recall in chapter 18, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And what does he say? He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. 
It's a much better kingdom, brothers and sisters. And if you are in Christ, he has made you a citizen of this everlasting kingdom. <laughs> Jesus wasn't after what already belonged to him. He was on a mission to make a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to our God. And his face was set toward Jerusalem to the cross. Next week we will consider in depth what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life. But for now we turn to the second sign Jesus performs in our text today. Pick up with me in verse 16 as Jesus comforts his people. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here we find darkness apart from Christ. Jesus' disciples get in a boat and start crossing the sea. They start rowing. It tells us they've gone about three or four miles into the Sea of Galilee, into this prevailing strong wind which has made the waters incredibly choppy and dangerous. And in the Greek, it actually says literally that darkness had come, but Jesus had not yet come. It's nighttime, but there's another darkness afoot. There's, this is a, a double entendre. Yes, it is actually literally dark outside, but the, the disciples even now are existing in spiritual darkness. And we know that for sure because when we go to Mark... In the parallel passage in Mark 6, it tells us that the disciples still didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And in the Gospel of John, darkness is signifying spiritual ignorance or spiritual blindness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark. Here the disciples are not understanding Jesus in the dark. Judas betrays Jesus in the dark. Jesus is arrested in the dark in the garden. You see, they were following Jesus, but they still didn't really understand who he was, and they wouldn't until the resurrection. We find them because they don't truly know Jesus, because they don't really understand who he is, we find them in this moment fearful. They're full of fear. They're tired from rowing. They're worried about their boat capsizing. And Mark tells us as well that when they see Jesus walking on the water toward them, they think that they've seen a ghost. They begin rationalizing. These disciples are crippled and paralyzed by fear. It reminds me of another example. In 2018, to nobody's surprise, January of that year, uh, the New England Patriots were hosting the AFC Championship right over there in Foxborough. But to everyone's surprise, their opponent 
was the Jacksonville Jaguars. You had to know that was coming. That was the surprise. The Jaguars were actually good. They're good every 10 years. And so the Jaguars had made it to the AFC Championship. And even more surprising, for three and a half quarters, they were winning the game. They, they were winning the game. But because of a series of fearful, fear-stricken decisions, they ultimately lost their first shot at a Super Bowl. Perhaps the most egregious was at the end of the first half. The Patriots had just scored a touchdown and brought the game within four points. And they kicked the ball off. The Jaguars took it to about the 35-yard line. And they had 55 seconds and two timeouts to drive down the field and kick a field goal and so expand the lead and put a frown on Tom Brady's face. So you'd think, yes, the Jags are going to take advantage of this. They're, they're going to go build on their lead. You can't give Tom Brady extra time. But that's because you're not a Jaguars fan. We Jaguars fans knew better. Our coach looked across the sideline and he saw Bill Belichick and all of his malevolent force. And he saw that beautiful man who's headed to the Hall of Fame with his beautiful hair sitting on the sidelines staring him down and he got frightened. He was fearful. He said, I have a lead of four points. I don't want to lose it. And so what they did is the Jaguars played not to lose, but they didn't play to win. They played defensively, but they didn't play aggressively. And so with 55 seconds left in the first half, and two timeouts, by the way, they could have easily gotten into field goal range. But no, what did we do? We kneeled the ball three times, went to halftime, and gave the ball back to Tom Brady so he could go back and win the game. I'm not bitter, though. Brothers and sisters, God has given the church a job to do. And God has given FBC Medfield a job to do. And that is to go make disciples here in Medfield and the surrounding community and around the world. And we're not going to be making disciples if we're playing not to lose. If we're fear-stricken. God's called us to play offense. To go and take ground for the glory of God. And you can't do that if you are stricken by fear. And I hope that you don't want to be stricken by fear anyway. There's all kinds of problems with the fearful Christian. Uh, and there's a biochemical reality to this too. Chronic fear, did you know this? I validated all this this week. Chronic fear actually impedes your ability to think rationally. It prevents you from regulating your emotions. It promotes depression. It weakens your immune system, making you susceptible to sickness. It accelerates aging and can even cause premature death for those who stay in a prolonged state of fear. Being fearful makes you susceptible to manipulations as others seek to control you through your fears. It's actually one of the reasons that totalitarian states always attack Christianity. Because if the only person you fear is God, you honor the emperor, but you only fear God. It makes you really hard to control. But even more as we think about the Great Commission, brothers and sisters, the fearful Christian does not take risks for God. The fearful Christian is unfruitful in the work which God has called you to do. Remember the parable of the talents? 
what Jesus did. So he, he says there's a master, he's going off. Before he leaves, he gives this one guy, this one servant, he gives him five talents. He gives another servant two talents, and he gives another servant one talent. He goes away for a time. He comes back. He sees the first servant. The first servant says, hey, I put your five talents to work. I've been fruitful. I produced another five. Here's your money back. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will make you rule over much. The second guy comes and he says, hey, I took your two and I made two more talents out of it. Here's your money back. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been fruitful. You've been faithful over a little bit. I will make you rule over much. And then the last guy comes in. He says, Master, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you didn't sow. And I, he literally says, I was afraid. And in his fear, he went to the backyard and he buries the talent. And when the master shows up, he says, see, I have your talent for you. I didn't lose it. What does the master say? He calls him a wicked and a slothful servant. And he calls him to depart into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dear friends, fear will make us unfruitful. The worst aspect of fear is that it reveals that your God is too small. It reveals that the God you claim to be trusting in is not the God of the Bible. Now listen, this is all of us. When we begin, like Jesus' disciples, to look at the world through merely a human lens, when we forget who God is, or we have an inaccurate understanding of who God is, which, by the way, is why theology is important, when we lose sight of this, then we become susceptible to fear and anxiety. So then, what do you do about it? Well, let's consider how Jesus alleviated the fear of his disciples. Look at verse 20. Jesus is walking up to them. They're frightened. And he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And in Greek there, he's literally saying, ego eimi. I am. Do not be afraid. Do you realize that one of the most common commands in all the scriptures is fear not? Why do you think that is? Well, it wouldn't be there all over the place if we didn't need it. But we're constantly prone to fear and we need to hear it over and over because we often revert to seeing things through merely human Term. So how does one combat fear? Well, let me ask you this. Why was David, the shepherd boy, not afraid of going into battle with Goliath? Well, it's because he knew God. He knew that God was with him. And he knew that this uncircumcised Philistine was defying the armies of the living God. And so David went into battle not trusting in himself, <coughs> but trusting in the strength of the Lord. Saul was playing not to lose and kneeling three times before halftime. Consider David's reflection in Psalm 23. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear some 
understandable evil, a lot of evil. I will fear no evil. Why? Why does David fear no evil? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Brothers and sisters, if the seas are tsunamis and Jesus is next to you, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. Listen, if you struggle with fear and anxiety, which is all of us at, at certain points, Jesus is the answer. Because walking on the water next to this boat is the great I am. And he doesn't say, hold the boat steady or toss off some ballast. He says, I am. He reveals that he's God. And in the other Gospels we learn, he says, peace, be still. And the waves and the wind cease and the water is calm. Jesus reveals himself as God and that's enough. And we see this in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 41. It's all over the Bible. Why should we not fear? Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Do you see how fear is an affront to God? How being afraid reveals that you think too little of God? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Dear friends, if Jesus really turned water into wine, if Jesus really healed the sick, if he really gave sight to the blind, if he caused the lame to walk, if he walked on water, if he calmed the storms with his voice, if he cast out demons, if he raised the dead, if he died on the cross and bore the wrath of God, if he rose again as evidence that it was acceptable to God, if he ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and mediates for his people and rules over the whole universe, and if he has promised you eternal life in him, if he really did all of those things and he commands you, fear not, then why hold on to your fear? Jesus wants you to be free. He wants to comfort you though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, we have a commission from our Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. Maybe that's your next step of faith, to have that conversation with the person that you've been a little afraid to go to. Maybe God is calling you to take another step of faith somewhere else. Whatever God is calling to you, whatever it is that you're afraid to do, but you know Jesus is calling you to do it. Trust in the Lord and take that step that he's calling you to take. He is mighty to save. He can sustain you. And his rod and his staff will comfort you. No one can nourish you like Christ and no one can comfort you like Christ. He's the great I am who feeds his people and watches over them and calls them not to live in fear, but in faith. This, this week we considered the signs themselves. Next week we will see as Jesus explains in great detail the spiritual significance of feeding a multitude. I hope you'll be back as we go into that. Let's pray as we close out the day.